2: Market rate, £3,000 a day. Were you signing Lionel Messi? This is First Minister's questions. Just once, just once it would be nice to get a First Minister's
1: answer.
0: Any political party in this chamber that was confident in their arguments around independence would not be desperate to deny the people of Scotland the right to make that choice.
1: The Steamy, a laudable production for The Scotsman. Hello and welcome to The Steamy, The Scotsman's political podcast. My name is Conor Matchett, I'm the Deputy Political Editor at The Paper. And with me this week, as always, is the Political Editor, Ash Grant. If you can tell um, the huskiness from my voice, it's because I have an absolutely killer sore throat. So apologies for any potential um, raspy word horribleness over the course of this podcast. Alistair, how are you doing, on the other hand? How has how life treated you this week?
0: I mean, it's been good, yeah. It's been another extremely busy week, kind of endless week, actually, to be honest, with various kind of rows in the SP leadership campaign that we can kind of come on to, and obviously the budget on Wednesday as well. So, yeah, it just it seems like politics is just one thing after another at the moment. Um but there we are.
1: Absolutely. And it's uh, um I, I can only apologize for not having been around for most <laughs> of this week. Um but hey ho, we'll we'll kick off with the big and SNP leadership story of the week, which was um a row over membership numbers um which has also seen Alex Salmond weighed in on Twitter um about the SNP. But Alistair, take us through the the very basics and, and what happened yesterday.
0: Yeah, so there's been kind of an ongoing row over, essentially, the various candidates in the SNP leadership context, contest, sorry, primarily Ash Reagan and laterally Kate Forbes as well, raising concerns about the voting process, about potentially the integrity of the vote. Um, there's been kind of concerns going on in the background as well. A lot of this stuff was coming from their campaign teams, particularly, again, Ash Reagan. Um, but then there was this row that's linked to this about transparency in the process, and in particular how many SNP members there currently are, so what the, the leadership electorate actually is. So the candidates didn't know this, which seems from an outside perspective quite bizarre. Um, we obviously knew, I think the latest figures in their kind of annual accounts were from December 2021 uh, and were just over 100,000 members, uh, I think 104,000 roughly or something like that. Um, but we didn't know what the membership was at the moment and there's been all sorts of rumours in recent months about the membership dropping uh, on the back of kind of frustrations around independence, the independence strategy, uh, frustrations around even Nicola Sturgeon's gender reforms that were voted through Holyrood before Christmas. So there's been all sorts of rumours, and it's worth saying that uh, the Sunday Mail actually ran a story last month saying that the membership had dropped by 30,000. And the SP came out all guns blazing and completely rubbished this story, publicly rubbished it uh, in a way that basically implied that the newspaper had made this up or had gone on you know, a source that was just completely inaccurate. Uh, and it turns out the story was absolutely true. It was pretty much completely bang on. So I think there are real questions to ask about the s behaviour around that, about the behaviour of their press operation. Um, it's just not acceptable to do that. Uh, and I think it, it, it creates a real issue of trust going forward, to be honest. If they tell you something uh, and they come out adamantly like that, and even, uh, and I'm sorry to do this, but I'm going to, pla- basically ran, there was a story in the National newspaper that, kind of relied on what the S&P press office were saying. And to do that, and, and for it to just turn out to be wrong and for the newspaper to actually have been right, I think is just unacceptable. But there was this wider transparency row. And then because, sorry, in particular, the again, the Ash Reagan campaign, Ash Reagan had written this open letter to Peter Murrell, the S&P chief executive, who is also Nicholas Sturgeon's husband, on behalf of her campaign and Kate Forbes' campaign, asking for these membership figures alongside some other information about the number of ballots that have been sent out, uh, kind of online or in in print, um, and then Humza Yusuf's campaign had also joined these calls for for these figures to be released. So essentially, the SNP was strong-armed into this, um, and the SNP's NEC, its ruling body, the National Executive Committee, released these figures, and it shows that uh, I think I'm right in saying, correct me if I'm wrong here, because I don't have the figure in front of me. It's something like seventy-two thousand members. So there's yeah, right. that, yeah. that 30,000 roughly drop since December 2021. Uh, it also showed that since the end of December 2022, so between then and February 15th this year, which is when the, the latest figures are for, um, there's been a drop of about 10,000 members. So this extremely steep drop of S&P members, and I think they've got maybe some questions to answer around that internally about what's going on there, what the reason is for that drop. So the party itself was pointing to things like the cost of living crisis, the impact on household budgets. And I think certainly that will have some kind of impact. You know, people will be allowing memberships to lapse. Maybe it's not a priority for them at the moment when it comes to household spending. Um, But it certainly won't be the only reason. And I think there will be other aspects coming into play, maybe those gender reforms did have an impact. Maybe things like wider frustrations with the independence strategy, as a, as mentioned earlier, maybe that did have an impact. It's something they will want to look into and I think the new leader will want to keep an eye on as well. And these things have wider impacts. They have impacts on the party's finances, which is another concern that's ongoing at the moment. So yeah, it's been, it's been interesting how much this has been a self-inflicted wound for the SNP. I think these figures are... Obviously embarrassing for them. No political party wants to uh, have, a, have stories about how, mu- how many members they've lost. But I think if they'd just been open about this at the beginning of this process uh, and said at the beginning, look, this is how many people will be electing the new SNP leader, it would have been a negative story for them, but they wouldn't have had these days and days of this transparency row. And in particular, allowing sort of conspiracy theories to thrive online, all sorts of speculation about what's really going on and these things thrive in a vacuum, you know. It's because this information, or partly because at least this information, has not been made public in a timely manner, that has created a lot of the suspicion. So, it's just such a self inflicted, a self inflicted wound. I don't know what you make of it.
1: Oh, it's classic SNP um, approach to openness and transparency, which is no um, openness or transparency. Which is, you know, they've, they've particularly in recent years they've built. Um, a party and a government on the grounds of not telling people what is going on unless it is positive. And it's all about controlling the broader media narrative, the broader narrative full stop, both on social media and elsewhere. Um, and that works when you have someone like Nicola Sturgeon in charge, who, you know, is widely considered to be an honest politician and someone who, yes, yeah, she will spin, but she'll, she tends not to Outwardly lie and then be found out as an outward liar, um, and I think you know it's taken a leadership election in which you've got one effective opposition politician in the in the in the form of Ash Reagan um, running for leader. In reality, she's got more in common with the Alba Party run by Alex Hammond than than she does with her own at the minute. Um, another anti-establishment candidate in Kate Forbes who has felt Certainly, under attack by the SNP headquarters and SNP party machine, if you like, it's taken those two um, to push the party into answering questions that there's no excuse for not having an answer to. I mean, it's balmy for, in my view, that they didn't just provide these numbers in you know two days after Nicola Sturgeon resigned, and when this is how many votes are eligible you know it's one day of bad news to be honest in the early days of the SP leadership contest we wouldn't have cared as much as we do now we only really care as the press now because a it's a good story but b it's pretty quiet in the in the in the broader leadership race there's no you know there's no policy announcement there's no launches going on or anything like that and we're coming to the tail end of this whole process and um, but their their desire for secrecy and to be in control of that narrative you know controls how they've behaved in this, and I, I said this on the BBC FMQs program yesterday. At worst, it's a conspiracy against whoever or whatever from keeping the 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 numbers secret for as long as they did. Or at best, it's rank rank incompetence. I think it's more likely rank incompetence, and that is a dreadful look for a party that supposedly wants to continue running the government. And I think this is the key thing in all of this is, you know, at what point does this trust breakdown among SNP figures and among pro-independence people translate into a trust breakdown between the electorate and the SNP? I don't think we're very far away from that cutting through.
0: Yeah, and I think it's worth saying that this is the, the second kind of major secrecy row that seems to have emanated from the parties. Uh, ruling body or the kind of wider leadership. Uh, at the beginning of this campaign, we obviously had a row where they initially tried to uh, bar the media from attending the party hostings. Um, they weren't going to be streaming them, so they weren't going to be made available to the wider public. They then had to U-turn on that. Uh, and this is another thing they've basically had to U-turn on. So it's it just seems like they're making these decisions that uh, they seem to forget that this is not just an internal party conversation they're having. Of course, it is that, but it's also the election of the next First Minister of Scotland. So they've got to treat it like that as well. And it just seems to be yet another example of them forgetting that that is the case.
1: Just a quick mention for Alex Salmond, who came out fighting on Twitter yesterday at bang on five o'clock, um, hopefully an hour um, before the BBC News, i.e. Um, just in time for it to be picked up by the TV news. Um, He tweeted yesterday, I think quoting uh, Robert Burns, or or I assume, is there's nay never fit that the truth should be heard, but they whom the truth would indict. And then adds, it takes decades to build a political party, but days to destroy one. I think to a degree, he's telling on himself there that his party has done a lot of the damage in in this case, and his party's supporters have done a lot of of damage in this case um, to the SNP. But... It's clearly he's enjoying watching the SNP crumble post-Nicolas Sturgeon. You know, he's
0: his now great rival. Well, I mean, he I guess he is the leader of a, a rival independence party at the moment, uh, the, the Alaba party. Um, but I mean, the point I suppose he's making is, uh, is true to the extent that the SNP has spent years and years building itself up um, to a formidable electoral force in Scottish politics, the dominant elect- electoral force. Um, and if you look back in Scottish history, it's far from being... The case in the past. So uh, I think there are certainly, if you are an SP figure, you will have real concerns that some of the divisions are coming out in this leadership election. Things like Kate Forbes, you know, attacking Hamza Youssef's record on live TV, completely trashing his record. Things like the kind of the digs that the various campaigns are making at each other. Uh, this general sense of an unhappy camp that that will have wider repercussions going forward. And it does seem difficult to see how the P easily moves away from this this kind of internal row they're having when it comes to the end of this process and trying to, you know, have a functioning government afterwards. I'm sure they will they will be able to move on from it to some extent, but it will also linger over them and, you know, it's the kind of truism in politics that voters don't like divided parties so if, if there is that sense that this, this is a party that isn't as unified anymore, that is unhappy in itself, that isn't uh, doesn't have the strong kind of leadership that it it's certainly perceived to have under Nicholas Sturgeon, then that will be a problem for them going forward.
1: Absolutely. Well, let's um, take a trip down to Westminster Lane um, and hear from Alex Brown, um, our Westminster correspondent, who provides us an update on all things budget.
2: Hello and welcome to the Westminster section of the podcast. My name is Alexander Brown. I'm the Scotsman's Westminster correspondent, And it's budget week, baby, at the time where Westminster gathers round to listen to a long, long speech they've heard most of previously in newspapers uh, in an hour session that could very, very much be an email, ideally at the beginning of the day, so they've got more time to go through it. And the thing about the budget this year is the bar was already low. You know, we'd had the mini budget from Liz Truss and Kwasi Kwarteng that tanked the economy. And then coming in, Rishi Sunak and Jeremy Hunt, the Chancellor, had spoken of tough decisions and tidying things up. Uh, and we weren't really expecting any rabbits. There were no rabbits to come out of any hat. Uh, no magical surprises expected, despite the tax receipts being higher than necessarily uh, forecast. And initially the budget seemed pretty, pretty solid. Um, you know, f- fuel duty was frozen, which it, it always is. I think that's now one of the political issues that's never going to go away. Some newspaper runs a campaign for it, and every year they say it has to be done, and every year the government says it's been done. Uh, there are, you know, there was nothing on public sector pay, but there was money for expanded childcare support, and you know, which seems really exciting. That is a good thing. I feel like it's been a political issue forgotten by the government, but campaigned for by every other party for a very long time. And also, you know, on the tax, there was abolishing the pensions lifetime allowance, which got huge cheers from the Conservative Party, uh, as to the fact that the UK is not in a technical recession, according to Jeremy Hunt, which, I mean, the word technical might be doing a lot of lifting there, but that is obviously a good thing. And so in the immediacy of the budget, it seemed quite good, but as we move further away from the delivery of the speech, it kind of hasn't held up to scrutiny and has become a bit more depressing. So, childcare announcement, that's fantastic. It's Childcare support has delayed for two years, it won't come until then, and the idea with it is that schools will help provide it, and it'll be self-sufficient, so they'll pay for it. That's not really a way of, of doing it, and it's just, oh well maybe that might work. The Pensions Lifetime Allowance, the Chancellor could not say how many people will benefit from it, but to do so you essentially have to have paid in or Be set to pay in uh, more than a million pounds into your pension, which I think currently is about eight thousand seven hundred people. So it's it really is uh, portrayed by as portrayed by opponents as a bung for the richest, but very hard to argue that it isn't when it's only something that benefits the richest. I mean, we also saw um, you know tax on beer was frozen for pubs, which we were told is a a Brexit boost, but duty on Scotch whiskey went up and. Asked about how that was fair or how that would work, Mister Hunt could only really say that support for the industry remains. So, and I think the main takeaway that he didn't say, obviously, is that the OBR forecasts still show that Britain is on course to have the full, uh, the, the biggest drop in living standards in, in since records began. So, the budget might seem you know, there's childcare support and there's maybe there's, there's movement on pensions, but you know no public sector pay, which was obviously the huge thing everyone wanted, and we may be getting a union. Uh, a union's uh, deal uh, with regards to the health system and strikes at the moment but things are still going to get really bad so it's really interesting that the rhetoric from the government seems to still be we're going to do this thing we'll do it eventually and it might be better things are still going to get really bad they might be better for a bit Um, but as the institute for government and the um, uh, IFS both suggest really the forecast show this isn't going to deal with growth this isn't going to help growth it's just going to delay how bad the damage is so i I wish i had more i wish I had more cheer to tell you, dear listener, but it was a budget that seemed fine at the beginning, but when you go really into the details, things are going to get much harder for everyone and uh Going into an election, they're going to have to do something because things are looking very, very dar indeed. For more cheery news, uh, you can read more of my work at The Scotsman. And until next week, thank you so much for listening.
1: Thank you very much, Alexander Brown. Um, fun fact, Westminster Lane, very expensive place to buy a house. Um, let's move back to Holyrood and the Scottish Parliament and we'll talk a little bit about Nicholas Sturgeon's penultimate FMQs her final FMQs will be next week and what she will leave the incoming first minister be that Hamza Youssef, Kate Forbes or Ash Reagan um, in their in tray because it was a difficult day i thought for her on uh, FMQs yesterday having said that though neither opposition leaders really hit 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 the nail on the head with their with their approach i don't know what what you made of it we had ferries and ferry bonuses which was then overtaken later on in the day by a further delay to Hulls 801 and 802 and then that was from Douglas Ross and then from Anasar we obviously had dentistry which I thought was a curious choice
0: Yeah so I mean I think it was a difficult day but I think you're also right to say that I don't think either party leader really uh, managed to pin Nicola Sturgeon down completely on these issues Uh, so ferries obviously a long running saga for the Scottish Government um, doesn't Seem to be showing any signs of dying down or going away at all, uh, and dentistry kind of tying into this wider debate about the NHS. Obviously, I think it was something like one in five uh, NHS, NHS, sorry, one in five dental practices no longer taking NHS pa- NHS patients in Scotland. Um, so, there's kind of wider problems about the health service. And it, like you say, it it ties into what the incoming first minister is going to have in their bulging entry. So, they're going to have to deal with things like the ferry crisis, the ferry fiasco. They're going to have to deal with the health service or um, try and kind of push forward of that in some way. They've got wider problems around education, education reform, a perception that educational standards are maybe not what they used to be. They're going to have to be dealing with things like that. They're going to have party unity problems potentially that we've touched on already. Um, They're going to have things like the deposit return scheme, the, the flagship recycling scheme that has, I think it's fair to say, not had its troubles to seek. Um, they're going to have to decide what to do about, about that. All three candidates have different ideas about that, but they all want to either pause or change the scheme in some way. The National Care Service, the, the kind of flagship care service plans, again, they're going to have to decide what they want to do about that. Um, it's something that is widely hated by councils, by trade union officials. Uh, and again, the candidates have different ideas about how to take that forward. So there's there is no shortage of things to do. But I think on the on the Ferries thing that came up in FMQs, it's maybe... If your if your throat will let you, it's maybe best for you to <laughs> explain that a little bit because I know it's something that you're particularly interested in.
1: Yeah, I love the ferries. It's a it's a it's a great example of a story um, about how politics impacts in how taxpayer money is spent and uh, the inability of politicians to then admit that that was the decision that was made. But the 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 story that came up uh, yesterday um, followed an audit Scotland report um, into Ferguson Marine. Um, who are fully state-owned. What came out of the Audit Scotland work was that the, I think it was six senior staff at Ferguson Marine had been paid around 80000 I think over £80,000 in performance-related bonuses um, in 2021, 2022, that financial year. And then there was a, a, a follow-up story from the Mail which confirmed that David Tybman, who's the current CEO, who was appointed in around March 2022, um that he also has a clause in his contract for an £80,000, £82,000, I think, uh, bonus. Now, understandably so, anyone going uh, to work at Ferguson Marine has the right to request a performance-related bonus. There's nothing stopping people working in the commercial sphere from doing that. But the uh, political optics of, um, yes, here's tens of thousands of taxpayer money for doing your job well and being positively performing when two ferries continually get delayed, I think is absolutely astonishing to believe that that slipped through the government machinery. And it quite clearly, this was what was interesting about this story is that it quite clearly did slip through the government machinery because, you know, often when this, this, these sorts of stories happen, you get ministers, particularly in the SNP um, style Kind of apologising for the thing that goes wrong in a very roundabout way, but in reality, kind of justifying why it happened and go. That's that's the sort of approach they take. Is like, yes, we agree that this is regrettable, but we made X, Y, Z decision. John Swinney yesterday in his um in his statement on Ferguson Marine called them reprehensible, absolutely trashed them, and you know they, obviously he's not going to be around for very long. He's going to step away from government, but it's it it's quite clear that the government are furious with the fact that this slipped through. Notable, it should be said, that the lead minister in charge of Ferguson Marine um, at the point that these bonuses were paid out was one Kate Forbes, um, which I think is potentially why um, John Swinney was particularly strong on it, um, given the ongoing leadership uh, debate. Having said that, there was further bad news yesterday, um, long trailed to be fair to everyone involved in the process. Um, in an interview with us um, over Christmas, David Tideman, CEO of Fergus Marine, told us that they were finding more surprises on 801, which was having an impact on how 802 was being delivered. Um, and then I interviewed Kevin Hobbs, who's the chief executive of, of CMAL, who are the lead ferry procurement body, who you know this was on the 5th of march i think it was he said that he anticipated some slippage in the in the timings for the two ferries so ministerial statement on the 16th of march yesterday um and shock horror those slippages those surprises were confirmed the ferries now won't be delivered until um i think by the end of 2023 for one named the glensannex um infamously launched with supposedly painted on windows in 2017, uh, now six years ago, um, and Hull 802, as yet unnamed, I don't think has uh, much more than a hull about it, will not be ready until late in 2024. It is an ongoing mess. It is telling that Nicola Sturgeon has been in charge of the SNP for eight and a half years now give or take they have been building these ferries since I think 2015 so she will leave the ferries will continue building it is quite possible the length of the build of these ferries outlast the first minister's overall tenure and now that tells you something about how dreadful that programme has gone
0: it's just incredible it's a a potted history of a sorry saga
1: (laughs) (laughs) But it's 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 a it's something that I think will be interesting. If Hamza Youssef wins, it's interesting, right? Because he was transport minister through this. He's got quite a lot of responsibility for, for the cock-ups around this. Kate Forbes, she is not clean and you know, squeaky clean on, on Ferguson Marine. She she was finance secretary when, you know, it it suffered during COVID. Um it is one of the big items on the in trade going forward everyone is going to just be desperately hoping the the bloody things get finished. They will, they will sail. Suggestions they won't sail, I don't think are right. Um, I might eat my hat on that proverbially, but I think they will sail, but it is, it's a mess. <laughs> um, um, I don't know what you think. I, I definitely think that fairies is one of those things that will hang over the next first minister. What's your top pick for, the most potentially damaging thing in a new First Minister's intro?
0: Uh, well, I mean, like you, I think ferries is one of the major ones purely because it's got this um, symbolic position in Scottish politics now of this uh, mm-hmm. kind of thing that's looming over them that they've managed to completely, um, or somewhere along the process, it's been completely screwed up and it's just a kind of never-ending saga. And I think they just, you know, when those ferries eventually sail, it will be quite some moment, I think. I think, to be honest, just depending on who wins, just maintaining that, that kind of party unity and that sense of momentum, and particularly when you've got uh, such a focus on kind of independence within the SNP and kind of driving forward an independence in some way, shape or form. I think just keeping the party together ahead of the next Hollywood election in 2026 and making it seem like they're still, they still got the momentum and they're still the dominant force in Scottish politics. They're not a kind of dwindling force in a way. Will be one of the biggest things they have to contend with because there is just this narrative developing that the SNP is, although it's still by far the dominant force in Scottish politics, that it's somehow on the way out. And the next first minister, the next SNP leader, really has to combat that um, if they want to continue the electoral success that the party had under Alex Samden and Nicholas Sturgeon. So, I think that in and of itself is going to be one of the biggest problems for them. I think policy-wise, I think things like the the National Care Service, to be honest, this this kind of massive policy change that could eat up so much money eh, and has so much opposition. I think they just have to be extremely careful of the way forward they choose on that. Eh, and things like that could could end up being a b- big problem for them. And you've just got things like the health service, but it's not a Scotland-specific thing. It's just a, a kind of massive problem in general for governments at the moment that is, is causing endless misery for people eh, and particularly loads of frustration for people who actually work in the NHS. To be honest, you could go on and on and on. But yeah, I think that that building, maintaining some kind of sense of momentum behind the SNP and maintaining party unity to any extent, I think will be be one of their big challenges.
1: So on party unity, I was talking to some SNP folk yesterday in parliament and um, had an interesting conversation about the future cabinets of um, potential future first ministers and who would put who where. Um, I'll keep it simple because I think we, we can come back to this when we know who's um, potentially won or you know looking ahead at who might win. But um, you would assume that in the name of unity, if Humza Youssef won, Kate Forbes would serve in his cabinet. And if Kate Forbes won, Humza Youssef would serve in his in her cabinet, his cabinet. Um, where would you put them in each other's cabinet? Now, for me, if I was Hamza Youssef, I would put Kate Forbes in health which is a thankless role. It's a service delivery role. It's a a role where she can't have much impact on social policy, but has to stick by collective responsibility on things like buffer zones. I think it'd be a difficult role for Kate Forbes to, to do. Um, and if I was Kate Forbes, I'd probably give or education, another poison chalice of, of Scottish politics. I don't know what you think.
0: I think it's anyone's it's anyone's guess. I mean, I think they will have each other in their cabinets just for that sense of maintaining unity and goodwill going forward. I, I think if Hamza Yusuf put Kate Forbes in health, it would be a real uh, <laughs> metaphorical slap in the face, just in the sense that she obviously made a very pointed jibe at him about um, his kind of position as health secretary during the TV debates, you know, said something like, you know, I would have him in my cabinet, but maybe not in health. So if he then decides to hand her that poison chalice, I think that'll be certainly seen as a bit of a, a bit of a jibe. But Yeah, I mean, I think one of the points that he always makes, particularly during the TV debates, when he's trying to take a dig at her is that she's never had a public service delivery role. She's never had a role like, you know, health secretary, transport minister in the way that he has. So I could certainly see him moving her into one of those. Um, But yeah, I mean, who knows?
1: And where does she put him?
0: I think, yeah, I think education, something like that can be a good shout. I mean, she'll certainly want to give him a prominent role. So it will be one of, the, one of the big jobs, I would have thought. And he certainly, because he is seen as the establishment-backed candidate and he has so many, so much support from SNP, MSPs, ministers, cabinet ministers, she'll want to keep him on board. She won't want to snub him, I wouldn't have thought, uh, just for the sake of maintaining that party unity going forward. Because at the end of this debate, although they've slung all sorts of mud at each other, you know, you do have to then just move on from that and kind of pivot from talking to the membership to talking to the country. So she'll want to give him a prominent role.
1: Absolutely fascinating times ahead. Thank you very much, Alistair, as always, for joining us on the Steamy. And thank you, Alex, as well from Westminster. Final thank yous, obviously, to you at home for listening. Hopefully by next week, my throat will not have me with such a... uh, raspy voice but you never know it might still last until then after this week it feels like it's going to last forever however next time we'll be here we'll be a little bit closer to knowing who the next first minister of scotland will be and thank you alistair again and thank you very much at home for listening